swing and a line drive left field. Benintendi coming on, dives, and did he make the catch? He did. He got it. Here we go. It's time to party. Right here. 3-2. High He crushed it. It's a grand slam. Swing and a miss. Strike three. It's over. The Red Sox have won the world championship. Welcome to Benny and the Bets podcast. Can you believe it? Here's your host, Terry Cushman. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Benny and the Bets podcast. Tonight, we're going to touch on the World Series, not really do a full recap, but we're going to just give some uh, brief thoughts on it before transitioning over to Red Sox manager talk. Some big developments that took place today uh, in Major League Baseball. Going to be an action-packed show. With me tonight... Charlie Smith. Charlie, how are you? I'm doing good, buddy. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Uh, you know, postseason transactions, kind of, I should say off-season transactions, starting to, you know, get pretty fluid. And uh, like I said, we're going to we're gonna get into a lot of that. But uh, how about that World Series? Six games? It, the ratings were down, but ratings have been down in every sport. And um, but I thought it was a you know an entertaining World Series. I so I'll say this much: I think the first four games were incredibly entertaining. Um, the the last two, not so much. Um, but game four will probably go down as one of the more memorable games in the last. I don't even know how many years, but. Um, what a finish in game four. That was my favorite game, and not because I saw the Dodgers lose. Uh, it was just, it was poetic. I mean, literally, it was a romantic end to a fantastic finish, an absolute just banger. It was so exciting to watch. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of epic games, you know, in the World Series. You know, most series end up having one real good one and sometimes the reasons are unique you know like for the Red Sox in 2018 it was it was the 18 inning game um you know and there was an epic comeback uh the very next night when Moreland hit that clutch shot but you know there's there's been a lot of heroics you know 27 uh excuse me 2016 was obviously epic with the Indians and the Cubs but, oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was a great finish. When Taylor kind of booted what should have been just a routine grounder and, and you know, then the catcher booted it, and that allowed Rosarena, you know, who was an absolute stud this whole postseason to, to uh, come across the plate for that winning run. It was definitely epic. Absolutely epic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess you know there's there's a lot to take from it, really. Um, Clayton Kershaw had his ups and downs throughout the the playoffs, but looked pretty good in in both of his uh, appearances, especially uh, I think it was Game One, just 
absolutely lights out and kind of set the tone for the Dodgers, um, you know, to start the series. I agree. Um, I mean, what was kind of interesting was the narrative that they were trying to go with. Uh, they made it seem like Mookie Betts was like the second coming of Christ. Uh, becomes the first person since 1921 to get a walk and two stolen bases in the same inning. Okay, cool. You're glorifying <laughs> someone who's been on the team for literally less than half of a season, like a regular season. Who cares? Well, you know who the he last... not the only... The last person to do it was Babe Ruth, so I think they were taunting Correct. us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I found that to be a little kind of, you know boorish i just i didn't really care for that and it was you know watch as the tampa bay rays take on mookie Betts and the los angeles dodgers like really so all right let's line up cody bellinger Corey seager clayton kershaw walker bueller like all of these stars and slap them across the face people that have been here for more than you know 60 games and basically call it the mookie and friends show uh, i just found it to be you know not that great but clayton kershaw did not pitch like Clayton Kershaw. This was not the postseason Clayton Kershaw that we were all expecting. Uh, a run on two hits, eight strikeouts, and the only run was on a solo shot. Um, you did your job, and no one can say anything to take that away from you. You know? Yeah, and you know, I kind of, you know, it's kind of love-hate with me with the Dodgers and in, in certain aspects. Now, I was rooting for Tampa, ultimately, but, you know... Kershaw's a guy you just he's classy you like to see him win David Price on the other side of the coin you know was cursed throughout his postseason career finally gets a ring with the Red Sox but really you know had half the fan base against him you know whereas Kershaw's universally loved in, in in LA very classy so glad to see him get a ring I think Red Sox fans universally like Joe Kelly still to this day. Oh, hell yeah. Nice to see him get a ring. You know, we've talked in in recent shows, you know, no one's thrilled about Mookie getting a ring after rejecting us year after year. Um, So, you know, so that's one aspect and, and, you know, but... But, you know, they finally got it, you know, in the most messed up year of them all. But, but yeah, so Kershaw looked good. Tampa starting pitching, not that great, though. Uh, Glass now wasn't terrible, but wasn't lights out uh, in his, you know, appearance. And uh, walked too many batters. He gave up six walks in the first in, in that first game. Right, six earned and six walks. Struck out eight guys. Like he matched Kershaw there, but four and a third innings, six earned runs, three hits, no control. Like Just, that's that's not going to cut it. And Glass now was favored by some to be a potential Cy Young candidate, and there's no control there. You can't win if you can't control the ball. Right, and he might win one eventually, but. Um... You know, but he 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 wasn't he wasn't an ace by any means uh, in this series, and uh, right. not not quite as bad um, in, in Game Five. But you know, did did kind of scuffle. You know, gave up three runs early. Um, so a little bit of a disappointment there. Charlie Morton had we were talking about his spectacular numbers. Uh, gave up five or six runs uh, in his start, so 
Yeah, yeah game three was brutal. He yeah. gave up five on seven hits and four and a third. I mean, that was the thing. It was, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays were getting you five plus six innings uh, as starters. They were they were getting knocked out of the fifth, and they were getting rocked. Glass now six earned runs. Uh, Blake Snell, unfortunately, got screwed in game two. He only gave up two earned runs, two hits, struck out nine and four and two-thirds, but they couldn't get out of the fifth inning. They just couldn't. They couldn't save themselves. Right. Um, you know, it was what it was. Morton, same thing. And it was just one team who has a starting rotation, and then the other team that has not only a starting rotation, but a starting relieving rotation. Like, you literally have so much depth. You have starters as your long relievers. That's insane. That's literally dumb. Right. And you're not going to lose. And I, I remember earlier we said, uh, I think we were talking, uh, Jason, Jason, you and I, you guys had LA and five each. So after game four, I was like, I'm getting two apologies, baby. And then game <laughs> five happened. I said, okay, game six, we really need to win. And for the longest time, it was one nothing. I'm like, oh, my God, I might actually be right. LA had so much more firepower. You almost you knew they were going to win. I just a little biased because I used to live in LA and they didn't do anything when I was there. So I was like, you know what? Screw you guys. But I also kind of wanted the small team to win. Like breaking down game by game, LA showed momentary glimpses, except for game four because that was just a little silly. Momentary glimpses of kind of losing it. Brandon Lau had a couple of homers in game two. Tampa Bay pitching did really, you know, Tampa Bay pitching did did. Uh, pretty good they didn't get the run support for Blake Snell though who only allowed two hits game three Walker Bueller had probably the best outing period yeah run on three hits double digits and strikeouts six innings and then you got COVID Turner who had a homer a couple runs and a double Muncie did well a Rosarena who I said before the World Series should have been the MVP had a home run and then you have Morton got rocked Game four was the fun one, um, which you look at the numbers for the Dodgers and you're like, wow, Turner had four hits. Seager had four hits. Each of them had a home run, multiple runs scored, a couple RBIs. Urias allowed two runs on fourths and four and two-thirds, struck out nine. Arozarena had a home run on the other side of things. And it comes down to the bottom of the, you know, the ninth inning when Chris Taylor, little botch, and we have some life. Game five, Peterson goes yard. And um, was it months? I think Muncie went yard also. Um, Kershaw again does his thing. Glass now does better. Tampa Bay relievers give up. Uh, they give four innings of no hit baseball, and you think, okay, let, let's try to get it done, get it done, get it done. It doesn't happen. Game six, it's the Rosarena show with another home run, and then nothing happens until the sixth inning, and they, you know. For some odd reason, in in Tampa Bay's infinite wisdom, you pull out Blake Snell, who's given up a hit in five innings, struck out nine nine uh, batters. Uh, I still to this day don't don't know why, and I'll, I'll wonder I'll wonder about that one. But that's that was it. The first four games of the series, really interesting, super close. Last two, no competition. It was LA all, all the way. My, one of my favorite moments of the whole series was actually in Game 5 when Manuel Margot tried to steal home on Kershaw, and he didn't make it, but I respected the ballsiness uh, of attempting to do it. And Hell yeah. It just seemed like the most Tampa move ever, you know? And you have to you have to make moves like that because – 
So many guys that were great in the regular season for Tampa were just a no-show this series. Joey Wendell hit 111, Austin Meadows 188, um, G-Man Choi 111, Willie Adamas 143. It just was not a good series. Hunter Renfro uh, 125. I mean, the only bright spots were Margot hitting 316, uh, Yandy Diaz 333. And uh, Rosarina, of course, uh, three sixty four. Oh, and Brasso, you know, three thirty three. But just some key guys, and some of those guys that weren't hitting were were in the one and two hole. Meadows and uh, Lau. Actually, Lau. I didn't mention him. He was really bad. Yeah, he was one twenty five for the series. So, um, just you know, that was a big part of it. But um, but getting to the elephant in the room, which you just touched on Blake Snell getting taken out. And, you know, I've listened to a bunch of, of podcasts, uh, and sports radio in general. I mean, it's universally agreed that this was one of the worst moves by a manager in world series history. Cause I mean, he was just absolutely, uh, mowing them down. I don't have his uh, pitching lineup. He had something like nine strikeouts. He had struck out Mookie Betts twice. Mookie whiffed twice. Yeah. Uh, and I'm thinking as Mookie's coming up to the plate, I'm like, oh, well, you know, they're not going to worry too much about this because, you know, Snell was just completely shutting him down. And that's when Cash pops out of the dugout and goes to Nick Anderson who gave up, I think, at least a run in six out of his last seven appearances. So I don't understand that. Yeah. I don't get it. It was so dumb. Going into the sixth inning, you're absolutely right. One hit, five innings, nine strikeouts. Nine. He's mowing two guys down an inning. What are you doing? He's not pitching game seven. This could be the biggest game of his life. Dumbest move by Kevin Cash. So stupid. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it It kicks up the debate where are they going too far with, with analytics? And I have a huge problem with it, especially when it comes to matchups. Like, I get... I get using analytics to work on their pitch selections and whatnot and, you know, which, you know, to focus more on the changeup or more on the slider in certain situations. But when it comes to matchups specifically, what Snell, you know, what his numbers versus Mookie Betts over their careers, I don't buy into that type of analytics. And I feel like whenever whenever a team embraces them, to the highest degree like that, what you're saying is players don't evolve because he, you know, he's got bad numbers against Mookie. He's never going to have good numbers against Mookie. And I hate that because players can make adjustments. They can get better. And I just seeing, I hate seeing that type of, you know, that type of analytics embraced, you know, so intensely. It's something that I feel like we thank that movie Moneyball for, but also say, God damn you, 
Because before that, there were very few people and very few teams, organizations that would do anything with um, advanced analytics, sabermetrics, to really get into the nitty-gritty. If you're a baseball manager and your pitcher has struck out nine guys through five innings in a win-or-die game, why would you ever pull the guy who's already pitched more than half the game out? And then put in some guy, and I say some guy, because, let's be honest, he's not scaring anyone. Blake Snell was terrifying L.A. And let me tell you, if Blake Snell wins game six, I would put money on it. Honestly, like I said originally, Tampa Bay would have the firepower to shut L.A. down because that's demoralizing, potentially losing a game 1-0. Yeah, and look at it this way as well. Snell started game two. And oh, yeah. So they already had a good look at him. And, um, well, he, he gave up two hits, but he walked four batters in game two. And so they already had a good look at him, yet he was far more dominant in game six. And part of that... Part of that could be that he's simply rising to the occasion in a big moment like players need to do in those games. You know, look at John Lackey over the course of his entire career, even going back to his Anaheim days, he was never an ace in the regular season. You know, he was uh, probably a number two on most teams. I guess on a bad team, maybe he's an ace, but on a team with a solid rotation, he's probably a two or a really strong number three. But in the postseason, he always brought it. He, he's he got a great postseason record. Kurt Schilling, another guy, he, he was an ace, but his, his postseason numbers were always phenomenal. I think he only had two career losses, something like that, and always stepped up. Blake Snell was stepping up in a big game where his team – you know, needed him to be electric and probably could have pitched another inning or two, was only at 76 pitches. And, you know, most most big market managers would have let it ride there. Alex Cora would have been a guy who let it ride there, you know, if he was managing uh, Blake Snell. And it's going to be one of those haunting moves for that franchise for a long time and and I tweeted out you know early in the series I said this could be Tampa's last best chance to win you know for quite some time and it's just too bad it had to it had to end like that I would have liked to have seen Charlie Morton you know have one more shot in game seven I, I don't know if he would have been any better than you know his game three start but um but it's so so i'll say this much i i think that morton in game seven would have righted the wrong because we've seen what he can do in multiple playoff games multiple seasons and multiple teams um i'm still shocked that he ended up getting the uh the yank i think that they will probably do an ESPN 30 for 30 on COVID season 2020. And this will be one of the more talked about 
uh, games and moments during the regular season, if not the most talked about, why in a deciding game are you pulling out someone who, believe me, when the season started, I was so over Blake Snell. I was like, dude, just shut up. Just shut up. Stop talking. Go home. You're, you're, you're concerned because you're not getting paid. Homeboy came to get, he showed everybody who, who, the, who the leader is on that team as far as starting rotation goes. Uh, Charlie Morton, not in front of Blake Snell. Glass now, no. Blake Snell is your one. And believe me, if Tampa Bay is going to be wheeling and dealing Snell because they don't want to sign him to a, a proper contract, he is going to get a ridiculous haul. And it terrifies me to know that he could potentially stay in the division and go to another team that I'm not very friendly with, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I just I don't see it happening where he would go there because of that team in particular. Uh, yeah, Toronto, I'm talking about you. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, I can't see him going to New York, but I could see him going to a couple other teams that could get really nasty with the addition of Blake Snell. I, I, I feel bad for him. Again, beginning of the season, not happy with him. But now, uh, you can't not respect him for what he was able to do. And just like you mentioned, Terry, they had a good look at him. And you would have thought, okay, he'll, he'll, he, they might show a little, uh, a little more oomph. It was the exact opposite. Charlie Morton, I thought he was going to win one and lose one. I think Game 7 would have been a win, and I think Tampa Bay would have been going home World Series champions, and L.A. would have been, I don't know, probably crying. I don't know, doing something. I would have loved to have seen it. Yeah, Snell is uh, under control for three more seasons. I wouldn't put it past Tampa, though, to trade him before the end of it to, to get some type of value. But you, you make a good point about his future because – when he won his Cy Young, I was like, this guy's a Tampa ace only, meaning he's he wouldn't be an ace on any other team in any other market that actually has fans screaming in the crowd, you know, adding pressure to a lot of high leverage situations. And, you know, Tampa's a you know, a relatively easy market to pitch because nobody shows up. You know, it's a pretty quiet atmosphere and not a ton of pressure. And watching him pitch in the World Series, this is a guy who can probably handle it. And if he doesn't win a, a World Series with Tampa, pretty good chance he, he's going to win one with another team and, and be, you know, the ace of that rotation or, you know, you know, one of their better starters, you know, if he ends up on a team with a deep rotation. But... Um, but yeah, and I, I, he made some comments before the season started, he, you know, back when the, the union and the league were, were fighting over what the salaries would be and the number of games. And I didn't appreciate his remarks saying it wouldn't be worth it to play if he couldn't have his full salary, because you're talking about, you know, you're talking about the, the livelihood and, and, you know, the well-being of the sport. You know, it, it right. could have been extremely detrimental if there was no season whatsoever. And so I didn't, I wasn't crazy about those comments. And, and you know, a lot of fans in Tampa, I mean, it was split like 50-50. You know, he, there were a lot of Tampa fans pissed about those comments. 
and you know I, I wouldn't uh, you know I wouldn't like one of our own pitchers uh, you know using that type of uh, rhetoric um, you know I agree but, but, I agree and that's that's what I was saying not a fan but he showed everybody yeah so I'll I'll, I'll let that go now you know I I got a little bit more uh, respect for him so. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the Dodgers, they they finally win the World Series, you know, after winning their division eight years in a row. Uh, I guess, I guess, you know, you got to win one eventually. And, and uh, you know, everything kind of fell their way. Uh, and Tampa's going to be a pain in our ass anyway when it comes to the division anyway, you know, trying to win that and uh, avoiding a wild card situation. But, um, but... We'll see. Well, you know, you spend when you spend two hundred twenty million on a team, you're expected to do certain things. <laughs> so the expectation for LA was win the World Series or you failed. For all these other teams, it's get to the playoffs, have a winning record, just have fun. Not in LA, and, and that's another thing that really annoys me. I moved to these cities, like I moved to LA. They weren't that good. I leave a couple years later, World Series champions. Used to go to school in Philly. Went to school in Philly. Phillies were garbage. I saw their closer blow three games in three different college nights. I literally couldn't believe my eyes. Following year, they win the World Series. So I'm like, just crap luck. I just, I don't get it. Like, I was able to see the Red Sox win when I moved home, so that was cool. (laughs) But, oh my lord, man. So... Yeah, like you, I, I have I have a little bit more respect for him now. So if he wants to complain, I have a longer leash for him. Absolutely. Um, so let's kind of transition over to the Red Sox real quick. Uh, Alex Cora could, you know, he could be hired any minute now because once that final out was recorded of the World Series, his suspension uh, runs up and. Basically, radio silence right now, uh, as far as Cora goes. And the interesting thing here is we've heard a couple more names added to the uh, list of interviews. I know one of them was, I think it was, is it Carlos Mendoza from the Yankees? He's he's one. Um, there, there have been a couple of whispers. I'm so done with Alex Cora, though, and everybody knows I'm I'm done. I don't want to hear his name mentioned again as a, as you know a part of the Red Sox. I just don't want that garbage. No, thank you. I buy no shares of that. Yeah, well, we're the two co-hosts on the on the crew that um, you know that think alike in in that uh, area. You know, we we don't want him back, but I don't think he's coming back, and. Uh, you know, I've thought a lot more about it. You know, since the last show, uh, two or three nights ago, but I, the the writing just seems on, like it's on the wall that he's not coming back because Bloom has brought in all these guys to interview, and you know, Venable. Uh, of course, I'm going to draw blanks now. Um, the Pirates Benz coach there. Oh, Don Kelly. Uh, he's interviewed um, James Rousen, the the bench coach for the Marlins. Um, Mendoza from the Yankees. So he he's had uh, a lot of talks with a lot of different candidates here. And 
it just seems to me like he wants to bring in a guy that's going to take very little money. Most managers these days aren't even making a million. They're in the the eight hundred to nine hundred thousands. I think Aaron Boone got one point two million, so he did exceed it. Alex Cora was under a million until they won the World Series. Then they gave him a raise and whatever. But you're you're almost done with seeing the you know the big names come in with the huge salaries. Like for instance, uh, Joe Madden got five million a year with the Cubs. Uh, Terry Francona, I don't think quite gets five million, but he's you know at three million or a little above. Um, I don't know what Larusa got. We're gonna talk about him uh, a little bit more in depth. I was trying to figure out what his salary was, but um, but for the most part, a lot of teams aren't really paying managers, and with a lot of teams, a lot of these managers are kind of just the middle guy between the players and the analytics department. And I just don't think that Hein Bloom wants Alex Cora because Cora likes to manage the team. He does he does use analytics, but not quite to the intensity that Hein Bloom does. And if you look at the World Series, you had the Rays, who we already know are extremely analytical. That's where Bloom comes from. But on the Dodgers, you have Andrew Friedman, who came from the race before taking the Dodgers job. And so you've got two extremely analytical teams in the World Series. So I find it hard to believe that Bloom is going to, you know, come away from Tampa into Boston and then just stop embracing analytics. I just, I think when when he arrived, he kind of knew he was going to have to keep Cora. You know, I mean, he was a popular manager with the fans. He's popular with the players. He was popular with the front office. Universally popular. Under no circumstances could he move on from, from Alex Cora. And let's just say for a second he, he wanted to and was thinking about it. He still can't really do it because he's going to trade Mookie Betts the first right. opportunity. He's going to make a series of unpopular decisions and then as fate would have it build a team that had no hope whatsoever, you know, thanks to the likes of your boy Matt Hall and Zach Godley and and Kyle Hart, um, you know, so he wasn't going to be a popular guy from the get-go, but that Houston scandal afforded him the opportunity to kind of get out of having Alex Cora as the manager. And right. he's not, of course, they're not going to, they're never going to say that. But so when, when you take all that into account and you look at all these names that he's interviewed, he's trying, he's trying to bring in a guy for as little money as possible that's willing to accept the most analytics as possible, you know, and, you know, to take the most orders from from him and the analytics department. And it just makes perfect sense to me that, that that's what's going on. He's trying to recreate Kevin Cash, basically. 
And I just don't see Alex Cora coming back. Not only do I not see it coming back, I sincerely hope it doesn't doesn't happen. I don't want to be I don't want to hear anybody say, "Oh, well they brought the cheater back." I don't want that. I don't we don't need that. We don't want it. I mean, we have enough dirty laundry now with, you know, players that have gotten traded and have, you know, left slash made remarks that are not very popular and um there's there's actually like a a a tweet that i want to talk about from mookie Betts later on um that still is kind of annoying me but it is what it is as far as alex core is concerned no i'm I'm with you 100 i I stand behind you terry yeah and another thing too is bloom didn't want to come into 2020 with dave dombrowski's baseball team you know, he wanted to make a bunch of moves, kind of overhaul it a little bit. You kind of saw it with Peraza, guys like him. That didn't work out, though. Um, but, you know, he brought in a bunch of, you know, different guys. Kevin Pillar, for instance. Uh, and, you know, and Alex Cora is a part of Dave Dombrowski's team, you know, and I just think he wants to put his own stamp on Boston, and he's hardcore analytical. I I can't see him, you know, getting away from analytics when you had two hardcore teams in the World Series, both number one seeds. So it just it, it scares me a little bit. The one upside to Cora, I still don't want him. Is at least you knew he was the manager and he was ultimately calling the shots. Now, if you have analytics. Just think for a second. Imagine, imagine a pitcher. I'm not going to use Sale as an example because that would be a bad one. He he would he would go kicking and screaming off the mound. But say, say we bring in Jake Odorizzi and he's having you know the best season of his career, and he's in the playoffs and and he's got an ERA for the year in the the low twos. You know he's a you know, top seven or eight Cy Young guy. And let's say he's mowing down a team in the playoffs and the third time in the order comes up because that's the boogeyman these days. And whoever whoever the Red Sox manager is yanks him, you know, whether it's that Zarita guy um, or, you know, um, I'm drawing blanks again. I'd say it's Venable. And Venable's the manager, and he pulls out a Rizzi after mowing down all those guys. The Boston fan base is not going to tolerate a move like that. They're not going to tolerate that type of analytics. Right. It's not going to work in Boston. And so that scares me. I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't want that type of baseball, you know, in this market. So, it's 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 going to be interesting, but one way or the other, I don't I don't see it being uh, Alex Cora. And the interesting thing here is AJ Hinch not official yet, but a lot of sources coming out of Detroit that he's going to be the guy to take over for uh, Ron Gardenhire, who um, you know resigned basically uh, the last week of the season. 
And so Detroit's off the market, and that's a destination team because they might not compete necessarily in 2021, but most of their top prospects are up. It is a team historically that's willing to spend money. So I think within a year or two, they're going to be competing for the division. They've got the talent, and that would be a team that a manager, a top manager who wants to win in the near future would like to go to. But that's going to Hinch, apparently. That's off the board. Chicago, right. another destination team, a, a team that did make the playoffs this year, You know, even though it was a funky format. Um, that was a, That's a destination team as well. Tony LaRussa gets that job. So there's really no other jobs for Alex Cora outside of Boston. Now, I was talking with Andrew earlier, you know, via DM, and I'm wondering, you know, could a team like maybe the Texas Rangers, the Seattle Mariners, the Colorado Rockies, the New York Mets, would one of those teams fire their manager if, the opportunity to bring in Alex Cora was out there. I don't know if I mentioned the Mariners in there, but that's that's a team. They're probably two or three years away, but you know they're they are kind of gaining some steam. Um, I'm just wondering if maybe if the Red Sox don't hire him, you know maybe you see a sudden firing uh, in one of those teams and and they bring him on. But it, it's not going to be one of the you know the more highly desired teams anyway. Right. Yeah. It'll be interesting to say the least. Like there's no question there. It's going to be interesting. And I think, uh, it's going to be up there with some of the more like, huh? Moves of the year. You know, like <laughs> it, it could potentially be like, huh? Wait, what? Like, um, <laughs> well, there was one they- of those today, you know? With- oh, I know that's, that's kind of, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of alluding to it, but well, I'm sure we're going to cover that shortly. Yeah, no, go ahead. I mean, we'll just dive right into Chicago because, you know, we were hearing the LaRusa rumors, but kind of a, you know, an awkward fit, you know, given the, the recent trend, you know, a lot of managers are um, almost half his age, getting hired. LaRusse is 76. You can't see a headline of him being hired without his age being in the headline. And, uh, you know, it was rumored, but, you know, a lot of people thought, well, maybe conventional wisdom will eventually, um, you know, win that organization over and they would go for a Hinch or a Cora. But but now that it's a done deal, what, what are your thoughts? Um, I'm a little bit you know, curious about it because I mean, he goes back to the team that he originally became the manager for. He uh, ended that tenure in '86, so he has literally not been a manager for this team longer than I've been alive, and he's going back to it. You know, <laughs> th- this is just—it seems a little silly because he did the the White Sox gig, then he did the Athletics. He won a, a World Series there. Then he went to the Cardinals. And he was there for like 15 years. He won a couple of titles there, retired when he won, and then 10 years went by, and we're like, all right, cool. You know, he's had a great career, and it's like Jack McKean all over again. Like, oh, well, who's the oldest manager in baseball? Uh, Jack McKean. He was around during the time of Jesus Christ. Uh, what was Jesus like? Tony LaRus is like that. You know, like nothing against him or anything, but it's just kind of like I-, I don't understand why you're going to hire a manager who's 50 years older than some of the players 
I mean, if you ask the players, oh, what do you think of, you know, Betty Wap and Eminem, Slim Shady, Miley Cyrus, and Justin Bieber, Tony Roos is going to say, uh, who are they? You know, like, the, he, I, I'm just curious on the, the level of connection. There's no question. This guy is, is going to go down as one of the best managers of all time. He's won, I'm guessing, close to 3,000 games now. Like, he's, he's won a lot of games. And he's won three World Series titles. There's no question about his talent. I'm just curious as to why he thought going back into being a manager would be an interesting idea. I mean, a good idea. It's going to be interesting. Chicago has a great team. But let me tell you, like, this was the most kind of head-scratching bit of news in baseball today as far as manager stuff went. Like, players, totally different story. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. Like, uh, what's, what's going to happen with some of these young guys? Like, how are they going to get along? How are they going to mesh? Like, it's not, it's not like having an Alex Cora type, someone who's like, you know, eh, he might be 10 years old in some of your players. He's 50 years older. He may be two, three times the age of some of his players, which is mind-blowing. So I, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. It's uh, a questionable move. It's a curious move. But I have nothing bad to say about Tony La Russa. So uh, props to him. I appreciate his time in Boston for the little bit that he was here. But, you know, 10 years, uh, 10 years have gone by. So I'm, I'm curious to I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah, I didn't get to read Passon's article, Jeff Passon, but it sounds like the Larusa hiring was a ownership decision, much like we saw in Boston, you know, at the start of the 2012 season with Bobby Valentine. You know, a lot of us thought Dale Swain was going to be the next manager of the Red Sox after Francona, and that was the guy Ben Sherrington liked, and then. He kind of had his toe stepped on when Lucchino brought in Valentine, and we know how that worked out. Now, I don't, I don't think Chicago has to worry about, you know, the circus um, aspect of of what we went through. I, I think Larusa, like you said, is a respected guy. Uh, three, you know, championships as a manager. Nineteen eighty nine, the Earthquake World Series, he won it with. Uh, Oakland, uh, and then again in 2006 and 2011, uh, before retiring, like like you said, going out, you know, with a championship, and you know it's interesting, but it was an ownership decision, and there's been other reports that there's a lot of rifts going on in, in the front office in Chicago, a lot of executives within that front office upset that. That was the course of action. Um, so it, it's it's tough, you know. Um, I'm intrigued. You know, I I guess I, I love the nostalgia of it. I, I don't know that that's going to translate to success. I will say that I couldn't have been more impressed with 71-year-old Dusty Baker with the Houston Astros. And I, I know we hate those guys for what they did and they've got a lot of players on that team who are, you know, easy to hate as well. Um, but 
you know, he Baker didn't have much of a pitching staff outside of uh, Grinky and McCullers. His bullpen, nobody knew what they had because they lost Ozuna right away. And he just seemed to figure it out. And maybe the analytics guys had a lot to do with that in Houston. But I thought Baker by far exceeded my expectations. And a lot of us thought they were going to beat Tampa, you know, going into game seven. You know, they just, they had all the momentum and, and it looked like they could very well go to the World Series with Dusty Baker, but luckily, you know, came up a little short. Now, with Larusa, you're going to see a lot of old school, you know, mentality with the moves that he makes. He's got a lot of talent, so, you know, there's a lot of different ways he can go. I don't know that Chicago is a hugely analytical uh, organization. I just, you know, they haven't been good for very long, so I, I just haven't really gotten to know them uh, that well in that regard. But um, but I think at face value with his successful career, you, we, we don't hear any bad things about La Russa. Like there's just, there's nothing bad about, you know, his, his record. And he was a very long-tenured manager with St. Louis. Let's see. Yeah, he was there for 15 years, 96 to 2011. Got two championships in that span, like I said. But um, but th- this is a guy who I think can get the respect of his players. So it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, it's going to make me that much more curious uh, to watch them. But the fan base is like burning everything down. You know, half the front office is is pissed off, and and you know, so I we'll, we'll see, we'll see. Yep. But yeah, I thought I uh, had another thing to get to on him, but but yeah, I was I was actually doing some research. You know, Tony Russa, Tony Larusa is well respected well-regarded by Major League Baseball. The man is also brilliant outside of baseball. Before pursuing a career in baseball, the guy actually got his Juris Doctorate. He's a lawyer. Oh, wow. Which I didn't even know. Like, I, I was just kind of like, you know, totally was, you know, he looks wise. He looks like anything that comes out of his mouth is just going to be like a, wow, what a brilliant mindset. Like, how interesting. Like, that's, I, I've never thought of it that way. And then I looked at it and I was like, holy crap, the guy has a church doctorate from Florida State, you know, which, which is also kind of mind blowing. But, you know, it's going to be fun to see him, you know, see him uh, manage again. It'll be weird seeing him manage not wearing a Cardinals uh, jersey. Um, but you can't not be happy for him because he's doing what he loves. He loves baseball. So props to him. Yeah, he looks like he's in he's in good shape. I'd be curious to see. Is he the oldest manager ever? See, I, I really should have done a little bit more research on him. No, Jack Jack McKeon was uh, Jack McKeon was a manager in his eighties. Oh, was he? Um, okay, I, I, wasn't he? He was oh, up maybe, there. Maybe it was the seventies. I could have sworn they brought him back for um, a short period of time. In hold on, because let me let me see. Twenty eleven, he became a manager again. He was eighty one. 
Oh, okay. 81 years old. He was 72 years old when he won a World Series. I remember that because when I was watching, I was like, Dad, he just won a World Series at 72. Like, most people are retired at 72 playing golf or playing cribbage. Like, you know, it, that's an ode to you and me, Terry. Uh, <laughs> or, or bridge or something. Like, what what in the world pushed this man to come back to it? Because he was a manager and then he came back six years later. But he was 72 when he won a World Series. 81 when he came back. That's insane. Yeah. I don't know if there's an older one. Yeah. I, I'm sure we'll find out shortly. Yeah, and he's still alive, too. He's uh, He'll be 90 in uh, November, on November 23rd. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely some good genes or whatever. And like you said, 03 against the Yankees, him versus Joe Torre. So good for him, uh, you know, to, to win that World Series. And the World Agreed. Series that La Russa retired on 2011 – one of the greatest World Series I've ever seen. I mean, Texas was a strike away from winning that a couple times. It had the picture. I know. Yeah. That so was insane. That was an epic that World Series. Wasn't 2011, wasn't that the David Freese home run? Yeah, and and then Nelson Cruz botched um, yes. a ball at the warning track. And, yeah, Ron Washington gets criticized quite a bit for – for how we managed that but um but yeah but it, that was just an epic world series and the guy was uh i think 67 at the time so yeah why wouldn't he retire how many guys stick around past that you know he'd been managing for 15 years it's just so crazy right so crazy that he's back and like andrew said it's an organization that he's got no recent uh connections with you know, so it, it didn't make a ton of sense, but it was an ownership decision. And actually, a couple of things now that might, you know, come to mind. Chicago, the White Sox is an organization that does have a culture problem at times because go back a handful of years ago, um, either Rick Hahn, the GM, or, or the owner wouldn't allow kids in the clubhouse, you know, during the day. And, you know, that caused Adam LaRoche to retire. And he had like a, a 10 or $12 million season still to be played. And he walked away from that right. money. And he he didn't make a ton of money during his career. It wasn't like he's David Price and could opt out because he, you know, had made so much money. Um, so, you know, there was issues there. And then there was an issue with the guys on the team were like stiffing clubhouse attendants because of customarily they'll tip them every day because the attendance of the gophers you know they literally go to the supermarkets to buy the food that the players want and yeah and I, I think it was happening though on the road when they were doing it so that was a minor controversy um the chris sale shredding the jerseys you know you can probably blame a lot of that on sale but i think it still speaks to the fact that the the culture there was toxic and you know, so the, the Renteria um, firing was a little surprising to me, given the fact that they, they had made the playoffs. I, I think some of the fan base was a little surprised at that only to get Tony Russa. Uh, but 
it's an organization that that just you know it isn't run very well and go back to the Chris Sale trade they had a pretty talented team when they decided to blow it up you know they they still had Quintana who was thought to still be a guy who was going to be a top of the rotation guy um you know Sale obviously at the top of it they had Adam Eaton in their lineup, you know, a lot of talented guys all the way through the lineup. Like if they just added a couple more pieces, they they probably compete for the division, but they blew it up. And, you know, it, it was right after the Chris Sale incident, which wasn't long after the Adam LaRoche incident. And I guess they wanted to change the culture, change the chemistry a little bit. And it ended up being what a, a five or six year rebuild. So, you know, it's just not a lot seems to make sense in Chicago, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Maybe they need a new GM. I mean, he's been there through all of this, and maybe that's right. the route they need to go, you know. It w- you're, you're right with the Sox because they had, um, they had a couple guys on that team. You know, that was back when um, Dave Robertson was there. Uh, Carlos Rodon was there, and people thought that Rodon could have been a superstar. Um, you had a solid one, two, three situation. I don't understand. You know, I, I, that that's going to be one of those moves that I think people will continue to be a little bit kind of huh about. Um, but at the time, we thought, oh man, we're making out. Now Chicago's laughing. They are laughing so hard. Yeah. And another uh, thing, uh, you can tell I clearly didn't take notes on Larusa specifically. Um, he was kind of taking some heat today on Twitter because apparently he was critical of Fernando Tatis on that Grand Slam with the three nothing count. Remember, you know, some apparently. Well, you know, uh, the opposing manager. I think it was the uh, the Woodward, the the Rangers manager. It was an interleague game, and he was the one who started getting sour about Tatis swinging on the 3-0 count. And then Jace Tingler awkwardly threw his player under the bus and said, yeah, he probably shouldn't have swung there and whatnot. So dumb. Well, so stupid. Right. Well, LaRusa was also critical of, of him swinging there, that it was unsportsmanlike. And, and of course, that, that doesn't fit with this new generation because – you know, some of the un- unwritten rules just don't play. And now you have, you know, bat flips and pimping home runs, which never would have, you know, that wouldn't have, you know, been acceptable, you know, as recently as 10 years ago. I mean, you're not going to do that off of Josh Beckett or, or John Lackey or, you know, Kurt Schilling. You know, none of those guys are going to tolerate um, those antics. But, you know, the sports evolved a little bit and and you're, you're starting to see that. So I guess it's just really important for La Russa to go in there and, and get off on the right foot. And I, I think he can do it because, like I said, he doesn't have a history of controversy for the most part. And players historically have loved playing for him. So... Um, Agreed. I, I I think when it comes to the pimping home runs, and you you hit on that too. Like it was super frustrating. Like, yeah, dude, you know it's a home run. Just start running, please. Games are already lasting eighteen hours. Can we please keep it under fifteen? Just like one time. 
And there, there were two pitchers in the 90s and 2000s and before that I would never pimp a home run on, regardless of the situation. And the first one is Tom Glavin, because I always found him to be a classy guy. You never saw any negative things about him. He was a longtime Brave and then Cub and did everything the right way. You know, that's one guy. The other guy who I'm not pimping a home run on is Randy Johnson, because I don't want to die. And that man is six foot ten. He could consume you and still be hungry for seconds. So why in the world would you do that? That it, You're right. It's a new generation, you know. But, I mean, players have to recognize you pimp me once, you're catching, a, you're catching one to the shoulders or higher, you know. So pitchers can retaliate, and people want to get at pitchers for it. But it's like if you don't pimp the home run, you won't catch, you know, dome heat. It is what it is. Yeah, I don't. I don't really fight that battle anymore because I, I. It's just. It's going to get more prevalent, and you know, ultimately, there's nothing I can do about it. But, you know, you remember the Bautista one from 2016 against Texas, and that, of course, led to Odor knocking him out the next season. Um, that but, was so worth it. Oh man, that was worth the price of admission. Right, but that was one that didn't go over well, and that wasn't even all that long ago. And, you know, and the the thing I still hate about it is you, you see Max Muncie pimping one. I, I can't remember if it was in game five or six, um, but he, he kind of pimps one. And I'm like, these guys are pimping these juiced ball home runs that, you know, are just flying out of the park. I mean, if, if these were real baseballs... You know, I mean, Manny Ramirez, Barry Bonds, you know, so many of their balls died at the warning track, you know, because they were hitting real baseballs. They weren't hitting these juice baseballs. But, you know, Muncie's getting these easy home runs, you know, because of the balls. And I guess the bats are different now, too. And he's pimping them like he's some stud or whatever when, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of these balls aren't aren't flying out of the park, so you know they're they're fake home runs, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And I yeah, I hope that they deaden the ball a little bit so that it just it doesn't get too ridiculous. I mean, I don't want I don't want seven guys next year breaking you know Roger Maris's record of 61. I mean, there's just no integrity in that. I um I remember uh, when. Do you remember when, this is almost 10 years ago now, too. It's probably, oh, God, 2020. Jared Weaver was with the Angels at the time. He's been out of baseball for, what, seven, eight years, maybe less. Uh, seven years, maybe more, I don't remember. When Carlos Guillen decided to pimp a home run on him, and he was like, uh, no, we won't have that. N- not today. Not ever. Not with you. And the other guy, when it, when it comes to Max Muncy, the only thing that goes through my mind is, dude, you're you're a nobody. Like you're you play for the Dodgers. You're not the best player. The hell are you doing pimping home runs? What are you doing? Right. That's like someone who pimps their first major league home run and pimps the second one like four years later. Like, oh wow, that's that's pretty sweet. That's what it looks like. I guess, you know, you only did it twice in your life. But Max Muncy's gonna hit a lot more home runs. There's no need for that. There's really none. I'm with you there. Yeah. And like I said, it's, you know, 
that that's what they want to see because it appears it appeals to the the younger crowd and they want more younger fans so i it's just a battle i'm not going to fight but i will laugh the hardest when they get punked by whoever the pitcher is in their next at bat um, yep so. and uh while we were off or while i was doing a little research off the uh off the uh mic here Jack McCain is the second oldest manager when he came back at 80, just under 81. Connie Mack was 87 years old. He is the oldest manager. But the uh, first, the oldest manager as far as tenure goes, Jack McKeon wins that award at 81. So that, that answers that question from earlier. Okay. I, I've heard of Connie Mack. Uh, admittedly, I'm not good with baseball history. Who, who did he manage? I'm pulling it up. Connie right Mack was a, a longtime manager for the Athletics, um, and then he was a hybrid manager because my my dad is a huge baseball person too. Um, he also worked with the Pirates. He's he's won multiple World Series. He's, he's in the the Hall of Fame um, and has been in it for decades. Um, but if if you mention Connie Mack and you look at his numbers, um, he. He holds he holds a lot of records and has won four, five, six World Series titles. Like he's he's done it. Five of he, them. He's yeah. He five of okay. So five. He's he's done some great work. He was the manager for the Philadelphia Athletics for forty nine years uninterrupted. So that's who he he won all his uh, titles with. Forty nine years. Isn't that stupid? I'm, That's just dumb. I'm thirty seven, and he still had a long way to go. <laughs> you know, he still had another dozen years after. Crazy, you know, right? Yeah, but it was a different different world back then. He was born in the eighteen hundreds. Let's see, eighteen sixty two. Sixty two, and he died in fifty six. So he was in his nineties. But yeah, that was uh, definitely a different time. But uh, yeah, so in the modern era, uh, you know, Larusa and McKeon, you know, two of the oldest to ever do it. So, uh, yep, yeah, yeah. Well, all right. So we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on um, Chicago with with that development. Um, I can't remember if we've touched on it yet. AJ Hinch, most likely to the Tigers, not official yet, but the rumors are um, pretty heavy there. Uh, one interesting thing before we get into some player transactions: no Carlos Beltran, no no interviews, and he was, you know, a popular candidate last winter. And someone who was always thought to be a future manager, and uh, not a peep from him. So I, I think that's that's pretty interesting. He he supposedly, depending on which report you believe, had a pretty uh, hands-on role in in the Houston scandal. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you you see Hinch getting an opportunity, possibly locking it down. Um, Cora. We still don't know yet. But here's the thing. If Core doesn't get a job as a manager, Beltran's not getting one. No, because Cora had a pretty uh, you know, pretty significant role in it as well. That's what I was kind of wondering. See, I, I tweeted just the other day that I'd be surprised if Cora or Hinch get a job and, and now we're seeing that Hinch likely will. Who who's who's the most culpable? Here would would it be would it be Cora who was a hands-on guy in the scandal, 
or would it be or or is Hinch even worse because his failed leadership allowed it to not only continue but but thrive? So I blame Hinch. You, you think he has more to blame? Yeah, he's the high. He's the highest head on the totem pole there. You know. Yeah, he knew what was going on. He knew full well. Um, and then you know, Core is not much better, but he wasn't the manager. So, if the roles are reversed, I would say Cora over Hinch. And I'm a Red Sox fan, and he was my manager. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I blame the guy who you you got to blame the top dog. You, this is your job. Your job is to ensure that your team is following the rules and staying in order you didn't keep your ducks lined up in a row this falls on you sir yeah and it's hard to tell which one is the better manager i mean cora ended up beating him in in 2018 but you know hench obviously i mean this was what their fourth alcs so that meant three of them came under him and yep. you know a World Series win and, and a World Series loss in, in Game Seven. So I don't know who would be highly desired. Obviously, Red Sox fans are going to say Cora because you know he was their guy. But but we'll see. There's no there's no obvious job for Cora outside of Boston. And like I said, I just I don't think Bloom wants him, and I think he wants his own guy. But uh, let's get into some player transactions. Um, we're we're going to get into one um, specifically that could um, that could be um, a player we end up acquiring. But just some others to touch on. The Brewers declined uh, Ryan Braun's option. I'm sure he'll still be sought after for a team that's looking for um, a third outfielder, you know, just to kind of plug in with, with two more. Atlanta comes to mind, depending on what they do with um, Mark Hakis. Um, and maybe, who knows, maybe maybe even the Red Sox. I, I'd hate to see him come to Boston, but somebody, somebody will uh, sign him. Uh, Darren O'Day. His option not picked up by the Braves. You know, he's one of those Submariner-style pitchers. Um, Zach Britton's option was picked up by the Yankees, so him and uh, Chapman will remain in that tandem. But, but the notable one of the day, Brad Hand, uh, very... very stunningly... Um, not picked up by the Cleveland Indians. So the Red Sox are fourth in line on the waiver wire. Um, Pittsburgh, Texas, and Detroit are ahead of us. There's no real reason for Pittsburgh or Texas to acquire him and spend all that money given the fact that they're not you know, expected to compete. Um, Detroit's a bit of a wild card Tough to know what their priorities are this offseason, whether they would uh, want to pick him up or not. He's flippable, you know. If if he's pitching well in the first half of the season, they could do it and then trade him. So there could be a motive there. But if not, he would fit perfectly uh, in the Red Sox hands and really give our bullpen a, a new look and 
make us a pretty good bullpen if you figure in, you know, Darwin's and Hernandez still being a late inning guy, Josh Taylor, you know, being a guy that will probably be pretty solid. Hard to knock Brazier at this point, you know, had a hell of a resurgence. So that's a pretty good bullpen. And I still like Matt Barnes in, in a situational role. So uh, I'm intrigued by, by Brad Hand. And I know Andrew uh, is as well. What, what are your thoughts? I'm just confused why you're going to release outright to waivers the guy who led the league, the league, in games finished and saves. He had 16 saves in 2020. Oh, yeah. He didn't give up a home run. What are you doing? So, unless I'm missing something, like, uh, you're looking at it, they opted not to pick up the 2020 option of $10 million for Brad Hand. Let's look at how much they have on payroll. $64 million. So, you've got Lindor, who's getting $22 million, because... Mind you, in 2022, uh, you've got a bunch of free agents. You only have $14 million committed on the books right now. That's it. So why wouldn't you grab him for another year? Your team was phenomenal. You'd also have one of the best closers in baseball for $10 million. So unless the goal is to release him, hope that no one adds him, which is insane, and then re-sign him to a more friendly deal... I don't understand why they made this move. I mean, this one is just, it's up there with the, the, this may actually be, I don't know what's more shocking, La Russa going to Chicago or this. I, I don't know. Honestly, it's like 50-50 because this one makes no sense. 50 saves in the last two seasons. His ERA was just over two. He gave up five earned runs in 22 innings. Had a point seven seven whip. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe he's injured. You know, maybe they know something. I'm just spitballing. You know, he's probably not. But you know, it's such a puzzling move that I, you know, I have to wonder. Um, you could possibly say maybe a lot of these teams are strapped because they didn't really generate revenue. Maybe it's just they just simply can't afford to, you know, to pick up that option. But but then again, he should be flippable. I mean, a team would be interested in him, and I don't know what the the return would be. Uh, but you should net at least one decent prospect. I would say a top ten prospect for an arm like that. Um, it it really is puzzling, and. I mean, doesn't anybody have trade value anymore? It makes me wonder what the Red Sox might be up to. <laughs> like, what shocking move are we gonna about to witness? I, I mean, I literally was left very confused when when that got you know announced. It, it really um, twenty twenty has just been a year of just a bunch of firsts where rules are getting changed and players are. You know, opting out, not playing. Players are playing, and players are playing out of their minds. Other players, you know, forgot to show up. It's been very, very interesting all season long. But um, I, I just, I don't know. Like, I feel like you're dropping one of the best closers in baseball for what? 
I just, I don't know. It's just, like you said, maybe it's for injury. We don't know. We'll find out. And I'll be patiently waiting for that one once that gets released because I really want to know what happened there. 100%. Well, Bloom got rid of Travis Lakins last fall, and that surprised me because he seemed like a guy who had some upside. And I remember after he got called up late, Cora kind of used him in a couple of really high leverage situations, brought him in with like runners on with maybe a one run lead and just situations that weren't ideal for a young pitcher. And, you know, unfortunately some of those runs ended up scoring and he just, he didn't look great in spots, but I still thought there was some upside. And when they got rid of him, I'm like, Oh, maybe he's injured. And then of course the Orioles pick him up and he did pitch this year, and I, I don't have his stats up, but um, seemed healthy. And so, you know, like I said, Bloom's not going to be attached to anybody. He traded Mookie Betts. So um, who knows what tricks he has up his sleeve. I don't know if Andrew Benintendi can be non-tendered because he signed a, a short-term contract that basically bought up his arbitration so he's got two years left on that, and so I, I don't know what the, you know, the technicalities are for some of these contracts, but I could see him not being in the organization on opening day somehow, you know, if he's not non-tendered, but um, I think we are in for a surprise. The, the longer we sit here, I don't think Martin Perez is necessarily going to be picked up with his cheap option of six million which sounds crazy because he's he's a durable guy and has been pitching better the last couple of years but but you know if they want to if they want an upgrade you know he's probably the casualty you know to to get that john lester type guy or jake odorizzi or whoever and i'm not even sure odorizzi is really an upgrade over Perez at this point. Coming off a bad year, he might, he might, but it's it's all up in the air. I mean, it's just one surprise move after another. I I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of moves that are going to be leaving us kind of scratching our domes. Yeah, you know, there's a few more days. Uh, well, actually, it's five days, so probably just a couple days. Um, yep. for the for the options and, and stuff to be picked up. And a lot of teams will be getting their rosters down. Uh, you know, I, I the player pool thing, you know, down to the 40, man. I don't know how any of that's going to work, actually. But, but there's also uncertainty as well, you know. Are we going to have a full season next year? I don't see how we can if, if there's going to be no fans in attendance, I think they're going to want to shorten it up again, but, um, but you know, we'll see. Um, yep. What was going on with Mookie? You said, uh, Oh yeah. Mookie bets over here. As soon as the, uh, as soon as the Dodgers won, uh, you know, the world series, he, he had a tweet that came out on the 28th saying, you know, the job is finished. This one's for ULA, the city of champions. Enjoy the hell out of it. But you know, these boys aren't done chasing rings. Now, Depending on what part of L.A. you're in, you are a little bit higher above sea level. So maybe in a moment of just poor decision, 
he forgot that the city of champions was where he used to play, but maybe because, you know, the Lakers won, uh, you know, kind of in honor of, you know, the, the passing of Kobe Bryant and the Dodgers finally lived up to the expectation and actually won, albeit spending 220 plus million dollars on your payroll. Uh, maybe now you can call LA the city of champions. LA's won one world series and, uh, 32 years, Lakers really haven't been relevant in a decade. So maybe I'm misunderstanding the term city of champions because that would imply that you guys won a lot. So I don't know. I I found that to be kind of like a a shot at Boston there. Yeah. Like, please, please don't forget. We wanted you here. You didn't want to be here. So let's not forget that Mookie Butts for being an ass and tweeting such garbage. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, over the course of the next decade, who wins more titles. Um, You know, the Dodgers already have one, so, um, you know, the Red Sox are probably, I mean, they, I wouldn't be shocked if the Red Sox won the, the 2021 World Series. I really wouldn't, you know, if the... If the pitching lines up, you know, if they make the right moves in the offseason. Because, I mean, who thought at the beginning of 2013 we were going to win the World Series with Lester and Lackey at the top of our rotation? I mean, it, it just, that didn't sound good enough to me at the time. You know, it, it could have right. been a, a competitive team, but I certainly didn't see World Series. And I didn't I didn't start even thinking that anyway until like late August. I mean, we led the division all year. I think Tampa took it for like a few days and then we we went back on top. But but it wasn't really until late August of that year where I'm like, geez, you know, maybe maybe we can. And I still favored Detroit all the way up until that series started. I. I I wasn't on Twitter at the time, but if I had to pick, I, I probably would have thought Detroit was going to beat the Red Sox with Verlander, Scherzer, and Anibal Sanchez had the lowest ERA in the American League that year. Best season of his career by far. You know, so you got right. that for your one, two, three. I just, I couldn't. And, and Cabrera, I, that might have been the triple crown year for him. Um, so, but, you know, the, the, those guys all stepped up and. Lackey, like I said, always stepped up in October, and 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 Lester's, you know, except for maybe the last couple of years, he's older now, but you know, the first two thirds of his career was always a phenomenal postseason pitcher, anyway, right from the get go. Um, so right. yeah, they stepped up, but but you know, am I am I going to pick the Red Sox to win the World Series under any circumstances in twenty twenty one? No, but. If we're in first place by August 20th and firing on all cylinders, we might have Chris Sale back by then. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if if we did win it. So um, that's part of why this off season is, you know, so exciting. And uh, you know, we got so many prospects that that could be up by then as well. And I'm really excited about Tanner Houck. You know, based on the the three starts we've seen. And just how how comfortable he looks on the mound, like it's the moment just hasn't been too big for him. And I know fans aren't in attendance, which you know can be a factor, but um, but yeah, I, I think we got some upside for sure. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not expecting 2021 to be a, a gas year. Like I don't think anyone's going to be looking at Boston saying, "Oh crap, 
we should be worried. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just not going to be one of those years. We have to be realistic, you know? Right. Like we, we, we dumped, a, just kind of overhauled the entire rotation, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah. And we just, uh, we're, we're not going to be competitive until Chris Sale comes back and we get another couple pieces. Right. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic if we get that piece and then and then Evaldi is is healthy until Chris Sale comes back. I think you can make a case. And I don't think the Yankees are going to be a juggernaut. They have a ton of decisions to make, and a lot of them are probably going to be bad decisions. Uh, you know, if Judge gets that massive extension and maybe they do something stupid like bring Tanaka back on a four- or five-year deal when the dude's clearly losing it. Um, right. And, you I, know. It looks like Tanaka's actually going to be headed back to Japan. That's that, uh yeah, that's uh, that's been rumored because of the uh, the team that he used to play for offering him possibly more money to play there than in New York. So, I mean, shoot, why wouldn't you at this point? And he could be picky about the markets he plays in over here. Like he doesn't want to go to Baltimore or, you know, probably even Detroit. You know, he, he right. seemed pretty partial to the New York market. So going home could definitely be uh, more appealing to him. But, but. Nonetheless, I just I, I don't see the Yankees really being the team that we thought they were going to be this year. You know, I, I don't think they're going to be super stellar next year. With that said, I mean, could they still win the division? Absolutely. Sure. But yeah, yeah. And Tampa, you just never know. I mean, if if the stars align and they're firing on all cylinders, they could win it. But but. I just think if the Red Sox do make the right moves, it's not out of the realm of possibility that that they could, you know, end up winning the division. Yeah, we're we're you know, as you know, looking for a co-host, and you know, I haven't pitched it yet, but this could be like a golden era for Red Sox podcasting. Really? Yeah, for sure. Because we're for at sure. the start of a lot a, of people, start of a new era, and and. I'm I'm excited, you know. Even even if this season doesn't quite pan out, the future is definitely bright. And and you know we got some prospects that are ready to be called up. You know, Casas. I don't know if he's he'll be up this year or Brian Mata, but they're they're pretty close. So we'll see. We're at an hour and twenty one minutes, so I guess we'll wrap it on that. I uh, totally lost track of time there, but. Good yeah, show. me too. I talk too much. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so good. A pleasure, as always. Yeah, good show, Charlie. All right, well, we'll be in touch, and I'm sure throughout the day tomorrow, and who knows when the manager decision's going to come down, but uh, it's going to get hot and heavy for sure. There it is. All right, take care, Charlie. See you, bud. Be well. episode 229 in the books hope you liked it longer than uh, i anticipated it would go but uh, a lot of fun topics and uh, it's just nice to be talking about baseball one way or the other regardless of what month it is or what the circumstances are Um, you know we're here to talk about our favorite sport and we hope you enjoy it so take care